0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'd like to um, start our time with a Puritan prayer. Some of you guys know I like uh, my, my uh, Puritans, and I like their prayers. And I have this book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And so this is going to uh, be our, our prayer tonight. Let's pray together. Oh God, we bless thee, our creator, preserver, benefactor, teacher. We we bless you for opening up to us this volume of nature, where we may read and consider your works. Lord, you have this day spread before us the fuller pages of revelation, and in them we would see what you would have us to do, what you require of us, what you have done for us, what you have promised to us, what you have given to us in Jesus. We pray for a conscious experience of your salvation in our deliverance from sin, in our bearing his image, in our enjoying his presence, in our being upheld by his free spirit. Let us not live uncertain of what we are, but of where we are going. Bear witness with our spirit that we are your children and enable each one to say, I know my redeemer. Bless us with a growing sense of this salvation. If already enlightened in Christ, may we see greater things. If quickened, may we have a more abundant life. If renewed, let us go on from strength to strength. Give us a close abiding in Jesus that we may bring forth more fruit have a deeper sense of our obligations to him that we may surrender all have fuller joy that we may serve him more completely and may our faith work by love towards him who died towards our fellow believers towards our fellow men in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So as we enter into this class, come on in. As we enter into this class, let me ask you a few questions. As I say, I'm not gonna have you break into groups. So I'm gonna ask you a few questions. And just so you know, I like a lot of our classes to be back and forth and same with you guys online. Um, let's have some back and forth. But I, the question I want to ask you as we begin this class is this, what are you hoping to get out of this class? What kind of expectations do you have coming into this class? I'm asking both cyber people and embodied people. (laughs) Stories. Yeah, good. Yeah. You know, um, inspiring stories from the past. Absolutely. Good. Be challenged by, by great men and women of God. Yes. What else? Personally, what are you hoping to get out of this class? A deeper relationship with God. Very good. Yeah. Some post-COVID community. Amen. Oh, yes. We long for that for sure. Good. Learning different ways to experience God. Very good. No, that's, that's helpful. That's really good. Well, why are we offering this class? Well, hear the words of Marjorie Thompson in her book, Soul Feast, which is a very good book. And as you know, I will recommend lots of books as we go make our way through this class. Um, in, in, the, in her book, Soul Feast, Marjorie Thompson says these words, there's a, hum- there's a hunger abroad in our time, haunting lives and hearts, like an empty stomach aching beneath the sleek coat of a seemingly well-fed creature. Oh. It reveals that something is missing from the diet of our largely rational, secular, and affluent, affluent, culture. affluent culture. If we look at the underbelly of this sleek creature, we notice ragged, unkempt fur and signs of disease. Even in communities that hold sacred values, much is awry both within and beyond traditional faith communities, a hunger for spiritual depth and integrity has been gaining momentum for several generations. Perhaps we feel an emptiness that leaves us restless for a larger meaning and purpose in life. Perhaps we sense that we are sailing through life in a rudderless ship. Something is missing. Something is out of balance, but it remains nameless. I think the heart's cry of our culture, increasingly so, is there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's a deep restlessness and anxiety within our culture. Why do you think there's this, if, if, you, if you hold to this, why do you think there is such a restlessness and anxiety within our culture right now? What's that? Twenty four seven news. Yeah, absolutely. So, what does that do to us? What's that? Keeps us anxious, the problems all Keeps us scared. Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. Keeps us always looking. What's next? What's next? Yeah. So distracted. Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, we live in a very highly distracted culture, for sure. Yeah, material oriented. Yeah, so we look to kind of maybe satiate this restlessness with consumerism, buying something, thinking that that one thing that we buy will maybe fill that void. Um, and we're taught that, right? We're taught that. That, that that will deliver. What else? Say that again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and one person once told me that um, that the source of all resentment is an unrealized expectation. And I think, I think there's something to that because we're told with all these devices, all these things that our life is going to be better. And yet, and it is in some ways, I mean, we could do zoom and in person and we could do lots of things, but there is this, this still the sense of anxiety, not knowing Jesus and the Holy spirit's presence and his thoughts and words for our days, self-centered, self-achieving isolation, focus on self lack of control. Why are you guys been busy writing technology? <laughs> Uncertainty principalities and powers. Very good. Yeah, I think those are, I think there's this deep heart cry. Now, I think there's a number of factors at play, and I want to, and, and we've touched on some of them, but I'm going to touch on, on a few. I think there's, there's cultural reasons that um, lie behind this uh, sense of hunger, this, this, this desire for more. And one of the cultural reasons is this, is that there is a loss of a sense of wonder and imagination in our culture. We have lost a sense of transcendence. We have lost a sense of um, of God, and we have embraced a materialist view of the world, saying "What you see is all there is." What you see is all there is, um, and that what you're made up of is what defines you. There's a guy, a geneticist named Francis Crick, who once was famous for saying all you are, all you are, is a bunch of firing neurons, that's all you made, of. that's all you are, and if all there is is what you see, then that's, then we are what we're made up of. There's a, there's a great line in, um, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and by, you need to know that I'm obligated uh, once a lecture to quote C.S. Lewis, um, so in this book, there's this person named, uh, this kid named Eustace. I don't know if some of you know the story, uh, but Eustace, he's a materialist. He certainly is a materialist. And uh, he, he discovers that this, this uh, man that he's speaking to, they said, well, who are you? What are you? He says, well, I'm a retired star in the sky. And Eustace has this great, he says, in our world, in our world, All a star is, is a bunch of burning gas. And the man looks at him and he says, you know what? Even in your world, that's what makes up a star, but that's not what a star is. And so what makes us up, what what we're made of does not define who we are. But materialism says that's all you are. Uh, The second reason is technology. And we touched on that and oh we can talk a lot about technology but technology has connected us right it's connected us i mean look at us we are so well connected we got um well we got yeah probably about 40 people online and you know it's 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 kind of cool so technology does connect us but it can lead to shallower relationships um i mean yeah we can talk about that but just this um an instagram culture is uh, did you guys hear that last week there was a study that came out and there's a there's a real push against instagram for the effects that it has upon teenage girls did you hear about that (laughs) i mean it took them that long to kind of come up with this study um but it's this idea that that so much of 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 Social media is about form rather than contents and, and style over substance. And, and you, become, um, you become what you present. And we, as a result, we kind of become hollowed out people. It distracts us, right? Vince, as you were putting it, it distracts us from, uh, from needful things. The third cultural reason I think in our, in our world is, is historical amnesia, historical amnesia. Modern culture promotes amnesia. We are fast becoming a culture that is forgotten where we've come from. We are a culture um, that has very little sense of the past. Now, this is kind of, if you've you've taken my classes, you'll know this is an issue that I'm going to hammer again and again. I'll hammer it with our pastoral apprentices tomorrow, even But this is really, really important. This is really important because if you don't have a sense of history, if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going. But we live in a world where very few people care to understand about what took place in the past. It's interesting. I'll talk to my students. I teach at a college as well. And I'll talk to my students about Billy Graham. And the response is, who's Billy Graham? Now, who's Billy Graham? Okay. Like I didn't grow up in the church. I was an atheist growing up and all that. I knew who Billy Graham was. I still had, I knew who he was. But we have a, a culture where we just do not care about what took place in the past. But the reason why this is so important is not just because I like history, though so that is a big reason. There's another reason, and it's this: is that unless you know where you've come from, you lose a trajectory of where you are now and where you're heading. And why does that matter? Unless you know where you come from and where you're heading. You cannot be a person of hope. You cannot have hope without a sense of the past because hope is based on, okay, this is where we come from. This is where we're at. I sure hope that this is where we're going to go. Right? This is what happened. Jesus came into the world, and this is what he did. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. He died for my sins. He's rescued me. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's drawing me into this great story that God has written for this world. I'm drawn into this, and I know, and I know throughout all history, throughout the last 2,000 years, Christians have known that when they die, death does not have the final word. The hope is eternal life in the presence of God. The only reason why we have that is because God has acted in the past. We know he's going to act in the future. Without the past, we are floating with no sense of hope. Now, is it, is it any wonder that one of the characteristics of our world today is hopelessness, restlessness, and anxiety? So... I think we are stuck in the modern ages, we're stuck in what is called pres- presentism in some ways. Um, we're stuck in the present. And this is exacerbated by screens. Because screens, okay, so I'll, I'll tell you, when I was young, younger, um, I went uh, with some buddies to Macau. Anybody ever been to Macau? Mincy, have you ever been to Macau? <laughs> Never been to Macau, eh? Yeah. Anybody been to Macau online? I see that hand. Oh, yes, yes, John and I. Yeah, you guys have been to Macau. So Macau is the Las Vegas of Asia, of East Asia. And so I actually went to Macau with some buddies and we went to a casino. First time I ever went to a casino. And one of the things I saw in the casino, one of the things I learned, one, it was, I was really bored. I wasn't even a Christian, but I was really bored. But the other thing is I looked around and I noticed in casinos, or at least in these casinos, There were two things that were missing. There were no clocks. And there are no windows. No windows. So I didn't know what time it was. And I didn't know what time of day it was. And time just kind of went on and on and on. And I know it's intentional. (laughs) Not, Not just in casinos. It's also if you go to the mall. You notice in the mall there are no clocks. And the only source of light is above, because they want you to lose track of time. Anyhow, One of the things that happens on our screens is we lose track of time. And um, and, and you has anybody ever had the experience of being online to check one thing and looked up and, and hour's gone by, and you still haven't checked that one thing because you got distracted? Was that, that only happened to me? And it happens not just once in a while, but it happens all the time. And that's one of the challenges uh, in our world, especially with technology. There's an interesting book. It's cool title. It's called um, Three Screens. It's just called Three Screens. And it talks about how three screens shape our lives. The screen of our cell phone, the screen of... Um, a TV or or, or laptop and our windshield screen, because we we drive everywhere. and We don't walk as much anymore. Anyhow, it's, it's interesting. And the problem is, is that when you're in cyberspace, cyberspace is not space. It gives you the illusion that you're in space, but it's not real space. There's no space in cyberspace. It's a false reality. And as a result, we become disoriented, unmoored and fragmented. When you're stuck online, big questions are not asked, more technology questions are asked. How does this work? Or how do you get this video? Or what, you know, it's, it's just questions of technology. Um, there's no silence. There's no solitude. There's no space to think deeply about things. How many of you have ever been scrolling online and afterwards thought, man, that was a deep bit of contemplation that I've experienced." And the other thing is that we are surrounded by noise. We've talked about this before. We're we're, we're lost, but we're also deaf. We live in a world that is surrounded, where we're twenty four seven surrounded by noise, to drown out whatever we want. You know th- that drowns out the still quiet voice of God. Uh, I just read for the. I read this every two years. I've read um, uh, Screw Tape letters. I know Mike. You you really like Screw Tape letters. Um, by C.S. Lewis. Okay, there's my second reference to C.S. Lewis. I, got, I, I have two more, actually. Um, how, anybody here ever read Screwtape Letters, the book Screwtape Letters? Wow, quite a few of you. Yeah, all right. Anybody online? Yeah, I see that emoji thumb up. Yeah, okay, very good. Yeah, so Screwtape Letters is an experienced demon writing to an inexperienced demon about how to convert, uh, how to tempt a newly converted Christian. That's it. So it's a series of letters. Very funny, very profound. But one of the things they talked about the nature of hell, and this is what Screwtape writes, he says, no square inch of infernal space, no moment of infernal time of hell, right, has been surrendered surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise, noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exalted, ruthless and virile. Noise which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing and impossible desires. Noise. Every time I, I read screw tape letters or whenever I, I think about that, um, I hear John Cleese. Have you ever listened to screw tape letters? John Cleese from Monty Python does the original. It's so good. You have to have a listen to it. Uh, the new one is anti circus is the new one. So that's, that's also quite good. Okay, so this is a problem because it's killing our souls. We become shells. We become hollowed out husks of what it means to be human. So what do we have? We have loss of wonder, technology, historical amnesia. The last thing is fear. We live in a culture of fear. that's paralyzed with fear, anxiety, and restlessness. And politics is polarized, Did you know that? (laughs) Do you know politics is a little polarized these days? (laughs) Anybody watch TV last night? (laughs) But here's here's the problem. Here's one of the biggest problems. um, Is we live in a very polarized political landscape. Yes. But there's something else that's going on. And this is really, I think, really important. And it's another factor in our culture. Is... We live in a world where, by and large, we we have rejected the idea of a transcendent truth, that there is truth out there. Instead, you have, you know, Bruce, you have your truth. I got my truth. And, you know, we all have our own truth. Deborah, you have your own truth, right? That's the way it works. But we don't have this overarching sense of truth. But here's the a, here's a problem. Here's a problem. If, Vince, if you and I can't agree on on something that's true or that we ought to treat each other in a certain way, that there's certain ways of of decency or just this accepted way of interacting. If we, if we lose that, if we can't agree on that, then how are we to interact with one another? Ray, if you and I can't agree on some transcendent thing, If we can't agree on how to treat each other with respect and which are transcendent ideas and values, then the only way we interact with each other is through the means of power. I have my ideas and I want you to, I'm gonna get you on board. And what that means is the, the only way we communicate is through politics, which is which is the realm of power. Now, have you noticed that everything in our culture, and I mean everything, is now politicized? That if you want, so I talked to somebody recently, um, she's a musician and she teaches music and she wanted to go to a conference on how to teach music better. Well, the whole conference was on political issues surrounding music. It was all about politics. And she's like, I thought this was a conference on how to become a better teacher. But everything is politi- politicized. If you want to talk about art, it's already, well, who wrote, who, who did this piece of art? What was he like? What kind of background did he have? And whether or not we should cancel him or, or not, or her. Everything is now mediated through the language of power and politics, which is a real challenge because if you want to talk about love you can't even talk about love unless it's first goes through the language of politics now we'll talk about this a bit more but this is something that's on my radar a lot because it undermines our ability to talk about pretty much anything because everything is all about everything is now first and foremost political and then we get to the next to whatever the topic happens to be anyhow we'll come back to that that's that's kind of a on my radar a lot right now because it's, 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 it's a real problem. And it creates this sense of fear. And a lot of people are, are, are afraid and a lot of people are looking for ways to escape. So those are some of the cultural factors at play. Any questions on that or comments or pushback? I'm looking on the... Uh... Oh, Mike, yeah, you even guessed it, power. Well done, yeah. <laughs> Any comments, questions? Okay, we are going to get to the water to the deep, from the deep well, don't worry, but we have to set it up. Um, there's also some personal factors at play, and I think one of the uh, factors at play is, is suffering and tragedy that we experience in our world. Our hearts struggle to make sense of this world. I came across somebody recently who was just really struggling. There was a series of um, issues that she had in her own personal life, and then as you were saying Joseph she's online all the time 24 7 news and is just afraid so afraid right and so it's just she's just so afraid and she was unable to keep going she was just she was um basically incapacitated she couldn't function because she was so afraid of all the stuff all the tragedy and all the pain and all the stuff that you see online and all the stuff in our lives and i think a lot of people are struggling these days the other thing is now this is hard to say but when people are looking to find meaning and to find purpose they're not always finding it in the church can i say that I just did. I recorded it too. So, oh no. Yeah. Well, that's, I think a lot of people are restless and dissatisfied and find that the church is not helping. We long for our faith to catch fire. We see shiny, happy people. And we think, why am I not like that? What is wrong with me? Okay. This is why I I want to teach this class. This is why we need to return to the well of living water. Because Jesus came to give us life. Right? He came to give us life. He didn't just come to us in 2021. He didn't just come in the first century. Jesus has been showing up in people's lives, spoken to men and women, young and old, from every culture, every nation for 2,000 years. And his desire is to give us life. And so... This is one of the points of this class is that you and I need to remember and learn from a cloud of witnesses that went before us. We need to look at their lives and experience and see how they experienced Jesus and how they cultivated a lively faith in a dry and thirsty land. Because when we do this, we find living water for our souls. And so we need to gain insight from these people. Now, one of the things I say a lot to um, young adults, mostly to young adults. And um, this is really important. You need to go deeper in your faith. You need to go way deeper. Now I'm saying this not just to young adults, but to everyone here. Now I'm preaching to the choir. You're all here tonight, cyberly and in person. So you are taking this seriously, but much of what we encounter in the church is like Kentucky fried chicken. It may taste good, but nobody ever feels good after eating it. And you often still feel hungry and a little bit nauseous. It's not very nutritious, right? But here's the thing. A lot of people, and and you see this more and more, a lot of people are walking away from Christianity, these ex evangelicals or whatever they're called, you know, people deconstructing their faith. You know, I tried Christianity, but I'm, I'm done with it. There's that fellow from he he's a pastor at Hillsong, I think. And, uh, and he, uh, he walked away because he says, oh, you know, all these big issues of life, you know, questions of suffering, questions of God's sovereignty and free will. Nobody's talking about these things. Nobody's answer, giving me answers. And I'm like, okay, you need to draw from a deep well. Because you need to know any subject, any subject, you're going to be hard pressed to find deeper thinking than from the Christian tradition. You want to talk about art, about aesthetics? You're going to be hard-pressed to find a deeper consideration of that than from the Christian tradition. You want to talk about science? Well, you look at uh, the Christian tradition on how the world is knowable, how God reveals himself in this world, um, how science developed in the West because of a Christian worldview. There's, there's nothing that, that Christianity does not have something really important to say about it. The problem is, is we're so busy just consuming Kentucky fried chicken that we miss all this great stuff. We have no sense of the past. And so we just leave all this treasure, all these treasures. that are just there. We just leave them. And then we say, well, I'm I'm leaving my faith because, you know, they're not answering these questions. I'm like, no, there's lots of answers, but you have to look for them. And you have to dig. And once you start digging, then you realize something really important. And that is how deep and how rich the Christian tradition is. That you cannot plumb the depths of what Jesus has on offer. And what drives me crazy is that people don't bother looking and they get frustrated or they're satisfied with whatever high they get from a Sunday morning to Sunday morning. And then eventually they hit, you know, a pandemic comes and they walk away. I'm like, no, there's so many riches and we need to draw from these riches, which is what this class is all about. As a good friend, as a friend of mine once said, (laughs) it's a good friend. Is he a good friend? He's a friend. Um, uh, He says, may I remind you that in the Christian life, some of your best friends are dead. And there's some of my closest friends are dead. I've learned more about the Christian life from John Newton, who lived in the 18th century, than any modern self-help Christian book on the market. So that's what this class is going to be all about. It's a class about Christian spirituality. Um, We're going to look at how women and men experience the triune God in history. And how their experiences can teach us and shape our own. And we're going to find out that Christian spirituality is about all of our life, not just part of it, that all of our life is is to be lived coram deo, before the face of God. It involves an encounter with God. And we'll experience three important dynamics. Relational, Christ with us. We are not alone. Jesus is with us. He empowers us to love God and love our neighbor. It's transformational, Christ in us. Life with God is never static. But we are to move into a deeper and deeper friendship with God. And uh, that's the Christian life. You have to be moving. It's like being on a bicycle. If you stop on a bicycle, you'll fall over, right? you got to keep moving forward, right? And so let me ask you this question. How are you doing in your Christian walk? I've met a lot of people who have been Christians for 25 years, but they've had one year of growth. Where do you want to be in the next five years? It's vocational. It's Christ working through us. We're called to participate in this world, to represent Jesus wherever we go. So what we're going to do tonight is we're just going to talk about this just a little bit more, about history. And I'm going to give you an example of what this can look like. Uh, There's a guy named St. Augustine, for example. Let me whet your appetite with St. Augustine. Has anybody ever read St. Augustine? Everybody's read quotations by St. Augustine, I'm sure. He's quoted all the time. Uh, Huge, 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 huge. Probably the biggest theologian in the history of the church. (laughs) I don't know of anyone who's bigger, uh, more influential. Uh, Augustine lived in uh, North Africa in the 4th century. Uh, and into the early fifth century, and uh, here's a reflection on his conversion. He, he came. He became a Christian uh, later in life, and he wrote uh, his Confessions. And his Confessions is a remarkable book. Um, the whole book of con- his Confessions is just uh, is, is shaped as a, as a um, as a prayer. And he prays this. He says, "Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new." Late have I loved you, right? Because he came to faith later in life. Lo, you were within, but I outside, seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong. I misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you. Those things which would have no being were not in you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasp and now I pent for you. I tasted you and I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burn for your peace. Another place he says, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in you. I mean, that's, that's rich stuff. Any thoughts on that one? Any comments? I mean, this is beautiful stuff. This is really good stuff. Now, Augustine's Confessions. Here's the thing. You're probably sitting there like, well, this is old. You know, it's from the olden days, you know, 300. It's so, it is very readable. And constantly, there's new translations coming out that are more readable. So, in fact, there's a new one that just came out on Confessions. So Augustine is just one of thousands of stories that we can look at that could teach us so much about our relationship with the triune God. I'll tell you, you guys know the story. I I don't have this in my notes, but uh, one of my favorite figures in history, and I think we might talk about her, Um, is... um, Is who? Uh, Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila, I think, she was 16th century. And um, Teresa of Avila, she's this earthy woman, mystic, who just loves God, but she struggled a lot of her life. She suffered a lot. She was an invalid. She was basically on a stretcher for years and years and years. But she was just very earthy and spunky. And uh, some of you, if you've taken my history classes, you'll know this story. But there's a story of Teresa where she's on the back of this wagon. And, uh, and, you know, life is just hard for Teresa. And the wagon hits a bump. And she she goes flying off the wagon, lands in mud. She just lands in mud. And she's so mad. And she says... God, why (laughs) this is, you know, I'm trying to love you. Why would you do this? And the story goes is that she hears a voice from God. It is God saying, Teresa, my daughter, you need to know that this suffering that you're experiencing, this is how I treat many of my closest friends. And she says, well, no wonder you have so few of them. (laughs) I mean, she's spunky, right? Another story. This is my favorite story, Teresa's story. You guys have heard this one, where she's in the outhouse with a muffin. Yeah, it's such a great story. She's sitting in an outhouse, Teresa. I told you she's earthy. She's in an outhouse and and she's praying. She's got a prayer book and she's praying and she's got a muffin in the other hand. She's eating while sitting in the outhouse. And the story goes that the devil comes and basically speaks lies into her ears and says to her, and you call yourself a Christian, praying to God in such an undignified manner. How dare you call yourself a Christian? And she just says, look, these prayers are for God. This muffin is for me. The rest belongs to you. <laughs> <laughs> She's just very spunky, right? So these are people that we can learn from. These are not just, you know, when you think of, you know, they're not just airy fairy kind of. These are real earthy human beings that uh, that we can uh, that we will learn about. Um, every generation faces the temptation to have a very narrow, myopic view of the Christian faith. And the problem is, is if we only read modern books, that's just going to be reinforced. That's why church history is so important. Um, We can learn from these people who went ahead of us. And so this is a course that invites us to drink from the deep wells of living water. And so one question that might come to mind is, can we learn from history? Well, yes, yes, we can. In fact, by learning from history, is going to really help us. So this is my final quotation of C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Um, He has this great line. He says, I don't think we need to fear that the study of a day and period, however prolonged, however sympathetic, needs to be an indulgence in nostalgia or an enslavement to the past. So he says, I don't think that, you know, looking at the past and studying the past is, you know, falling into nostalgia or being sucked in or trapped in the past. He says, it's it's not the remembered past. It's the forgotten past that will enslave you. And I think it's true of society. I think no class of men and women are less enslaved to the past than historians. It is the unhistorical who are usually without knowing it is enslaved to the very recent past. And then later he says, the, the, the person who understands history is, is like a person who has lived in many places at many times. And he says, this man, quote, is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times and is therefore, in some degree, immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. Wow. Is that good or what? Learning from the past delivers us from chronological snobbery. This idea that somehow in the olden days, things were bad and now things are necessarily good because it's newer. No, the past is, is complex. It's like a foreign country, but it's a place where we need to visit. Now, one more thing I want to say about this, about the past, one of the other reasons why we need to explore history, and it's, it's a, it's, it should be the most obvious one, and it's this, is that God is historical. Right? God is historical. Christianity is based on what? Based on a person and an event, right? The person is Jesus Christ. The event is his life, death, and resurrection. That's what Christianity is based on, right? When does this happen? In history, in a place, right? There are emperors. We know the emperors at the time. We know where there's a there's a geographical location. So God is a God who operates in the raw material of history. God is historical, and that drives people crazy. I have so <clears throat> excuse me. I have so many um, debates with um, atheists. And a lot of the atheists, they want to talk about God as if he's abstract. And they're like, well, why does God say this, you know, in the book of Exodus? And then in the book of Leviticus, he says this. And then, so they're talking, see, those are contradictions. Therefore, God cannot be true. I'm like, you want God to be a triangle. You want God to be some mathematical symbol or, but that's not who God is. God is personal. And he acts in the messy, raw material of history, including the messy, raw material of our lives. And that's what the Bible is, is the story of God, is God's revelation of himself at work in history. God is historical. And, and a lot of people, a lot of, again, a lot of atheists um, struggle with that because they want this neat and tidy God. The, the Greeks in the early church The Greeks struggled with the Christian understanding of God because the Greeks, they wanted something neat and tidy. And the Christian said, well, it's not tidy. And I'm totally okay with that because you know what? My life is not tidy. Is yours? No. That's okay. God works in, in, in the messiness of our lives. And so, the same God who is working in the Bible is, 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 worked throughout history. And he's the one, the same God that called Abraham is in the business of calling you and I right up to now in, in Coquitlam. And we, you and I are invited into the story that God is writing. Right. Now here's a, a warning because as we um, make our way through class, some of the people we're going to look at, if you're a good Protestant, you're going to struggle with some of these people. You're going to be like, "Uh, David, these guys are Catholic. No, they're worse. They're Orthodox. (laughs) Worse, they're Pentecostal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, why are we looking at somebody who didn't condemn the Crusades. He lived at the time of the Crusades. Why didn't he condemn the Crusades? We're going to come across people who lived in different time periods with different traditions. And some of these people are going to come across as a little bit strange. They're living in different times, different places, different cultures. But I think these people can teach us something about the Christian life. Now, here's the thing. Each person that we look at, they're not perfect. There's only one hero in history, and that's Jesus. These people are not perfect. Teresa was not perfect. Teresa of Avila, as much as I like her, um, she wasn't... I don't think she had a very deep understanding of the Bible. She had a deep experience of God, but not necessarily a deep understanding of the Bible, and we have to take those things into consideration. We're going to talk about... um, martyrdom well martyrdom dying for your faith i mean there's a lot of people all throughout history that have died for their faith right up to today right but here in coquitlam chances are we're not going to die for our faith not yet um it's not an experience that that i've had um i don't know anyone who's died for their faith personally So what do these martyrs have to say to us? Well, we're going to say, well, maybe they can teach us something about a life, what a life that, what it looks like to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. We're also going to look at people who did some strange things. They, 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 they left the affluence of the city. They left, you know, the good life and they went off to live In the desert, it's like taking off to a Soyuz and living. Well, no, a Soyuz is nice though, right? A Soyuz last summer. (laughs) Why would they run off to the desert? Why would they go to the desert? What were they looking for? Did they find it? And what, but here's the thing. What can they say to us in a world of comfort and convenience that we really need to hear? I think they have something to say to us. you think about those who who left their homes and sailed across the world to faraway lands to share the gospel. Only to bump into barbarians that have axes that want to cut you into half. And many of these missionaries did get cut into half. Why did they persist in this? What does this say to us when we're afraid to share the gospel with our neighbor on Westwood Plateau? And you have St. Boniface literally being cut in half by a barbarian <laughs> for sharing the gospel. I think these guys have something to say to us. These men and women read the same Bible that we read, but they followed the Lord in different ways. And I think we can learn from them. And it's easy for us to shake our head say, oh, they got things wrong. But... I think they can say something to us. They're sinners, but they have something to say. There's, a, there's an old Latin phrase I came across, and it's, uh, it says Abuses non Abusus non tollit usus. Abuses do not destroy uses. So just because some guy is not perfect who lived in history does not mean that the, they don't have anything useful to say to our lives today. Okay. So no tradition gets it correct. Not even if you can believe it, the Christian and missionary Alliance. Um, and so if we sit from a position and when we hear about these guys, these monks and like, huh, stupid monks, um, we're not going to get very far. So we need to have a posture of humility. Um, when I lived in China, um, one of the first things I did when I went there is I really wanted to learn the language and I wanted to see how people lived because China in 1990 is very different than anything in Canada. It's, it's, very different, especially a small town where I grew up in. And so when I went to China, I just, I recognized there's different cultures, different customs, different, different ways of thinking, let alone different language. And so I had to listen I really had to listen. But I, my posture was that of curiosity. I was fascinated by Chinese culture. It's just such an interesting culture, so different than Western culture. And so from that posture of curiosity, I learned, I learned quite a bit. And I think the same posture that we have when we go to a foreign country. Now, I also knew people in China all they did was complain. Oh, I don't like the toilets. Oh, I don't like the food. Oh, you don't have butter. Oh, there's no cheese. Oh, there's no, everybody complained. I'm like, dude, go home, go home. Why are you here? Right. You have to, but the thing is, if you look at the past and you're like, oh, why did they do this? Oh, why did they do this? You're like that person that you've gone to a foreign country, but you're not really listening. And the past is like a foreign country and we need to listen and learn the language and learn the culture and kind of see what's going on. And I think that's our approach that needs to be our approach. Okay. So let me give you an example of this Uh, before. I've been talking for a while. Well, look at that. 757. Um, You cyber people, so quiet. Any, uh, well I know you're actually, you're busy on the chat. (laughs) Uh, Any comments, questions? And don't write it. Just tell me (laughs) if you have a comment or question. Okay, embodied people. Any any questions, comments? Any, uh, even comments. Yeah. yeah, I, I think, I, so if I understand your question, uh, Carla, is, um, is basically, how do you go from there to here? Like in some ways, because if you're looking at somebody who lived a thousand years ago and they do certain things, how do you evaluate that and apply it to our our own culture, which is quite a bit removed from the circumstances there? Is that partly the question? Yeah. The stuff that people Yeah, do Yeah, Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very good, okay. So Tarlin's asking a very important historiography question is basically how do you look at somebody in the past like, and you don't even have to go to, I mean, the Crusades is easy to hit, right? You know, but, you know, you're, how do you talk about a guy like, um, you know, William Wilberforce, everybody, like, it, you know, the abolition of the slave trade. Um, and yet he would probably have a certain understanding of the role of men and women in society that in our 21st century thinking be like, that's not right. So how do we, how do we take, how do we find the value of what they're saying? without us tripping over the fact that they had a lot of beliefs that by our today's standard, might, we might find problematic. That's a really, really important question of history because sometimes as Christians like, Oh, you know, George Whitfield, greatest evangelist next to Billy Graham. And he was, he's the greatest evangelism of evangelists of the 18th century. Thousands of people came to faith through George Whitfield. People would give anything they had if they could say, this is one guy even said this, if I could just say the word Mesopotamia, like George Whitfield, because that's how good of us for he, the guy could preach, and thousands of people all around the world, or in North America and in, and in Europe, came to faith through George Whitfield. So much we can learn from him. He was a slave owner. He owned slaves. And he preached to the slaves to lead them to Jesus. But he owned slaves. Oh. So what do we do with that? His statue was pulled down recently in the last year um, in, in in the south. So that is a really important question. Well, I think what we have to do is we need to look at the person within the understanding of their times. And what that does is it, it gives us sympathy and empathy. Sympathy, um, I guess, yeah, it gives us empathy, put it that way. We're able to maybe put ourselves into issues. If we were living in that context, how would we have seen the world? Okay, we also take the approach that living in the 21st century, I don't care how woke you may be, not saying you, but I am just say, I don't care how on top of things you are, within 10 years, you're going to be out of date. And people are going to look back at some of your beliefs in this day and age and see them as being maybe chauvinistic or wrong in a whole bunch of ways. Because we hold on to the doctrine of sin, that all of us have clay feet, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And all of us operate within the raw material of history with the assumptions around us. And so what we do is we look at how a person lived, given the realities at the time, and how they tried to pursue their life in Christ and see through, again, it's that the past is a foreign country. We have to see the language and the culture of the time and say, okay, how did they navigate that in the same way I have to navigate my own culture? And what that does, it gives us empathy, it gives us humility, but it also allows us to say, yeah, but you know what, George Whitfield, that was a blind spot and an important blind spot. And we need to acknowledge that. We can't just paint over the rough parts of history. We need to acknowledge them. Same with Augustine. I mean, he has this concubine, comes to faith, he had a concubine and he had a, he had a child. And after he comes to faith, we don't hear about the concubine. So it's like, well, well what, what happened? So now you're a Christian and you're living the self. Well, well, what happened? Did you just get kind of left behind in the bad? But that's okay because here's the thing when I look at my life, same thing. I got all sorts of prejudice, all sorts of biases, all sorts of ways I see reality that. Are problematic because sin, sin is still part of my heart. But that's okay. There's a common humanity that we can see throughout history, and I think that allows us to have humility and empathy and yet still speak truth about them, and still gather where their strength in terms of how they related to God, how they pursued God in the midst of the messiness of their culture. Does that help? Yes. Now if you want i actually wrote an article on this <laughs> i did write an article on this and so i will post it uh on in with the notes next week if you're if you're interested but uh it is an article and Mehdi, you just read it on on uh, it's called um, look behind you how, how to understand the past because that's a that's a big question today does every statue need to be torn down well some do if there's Paul pot statue in Lafarge square i'd probably pull it down so what it's the criteria used. so anyhow great question let's see if you guys have been talking about this at all 10 years now years, years. <laughs> uh i'll say you guys had lots of conversations going on here <laughs> while i was talking anyhow let me uh let me give you an example of, of where of where we can draw some of the um the values from uh, a historical figure i already told you a little bit about augustine just touched on augustine I told you a couple of stories of Teresa of Avila. Let me tell you about somebody else. Okay, can I tell you about a fella named Dante? Yeah. So this is Dante. You have a picture of him in your notes. Looks like he's wearing earpods or headphones. Um, so Dante. Now, why am I bringing up Dante? <laughs> Sorry. Somebody's just giving me a hard time online, that's that's mean. Um, Dante, he died 700 years ago last week. And right now, around the world, the largest book club in the world is going on. And this book club is walking through Dante's most famous work, The Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy. So Dante he lived in the early 1300. Well, 1265 to 321. He's an Italian poet and considered one of the greatest poets in all history. Um, this poet, this poem, the Divine Comedy, is divided into three parts. The first part is called anybody know? The hell of a read, Inferno. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> second part is called Purgatorio, which is on Purgatory. And the third part is on, is Paradiso on paradise, right? And um, it's got a hundred chapters, hundred cantos. And um, each book has, there's supposed to be, there's 33 and then one intro canto. So it's a 33, it's Trinity, like three, three. A um, hundred altogether is, is a number of perfection. And so he writes this book and um, for fun, and it is fun. I started a book club on Facebook. And uh, I said, well, let's read Dante together. So across around the world, there's a bunch of people reading the, the Divine Comedy. And the way it works is you read three chapters in a week. And by the time you get to Easter, you're done. And, uh, and so I've started it. And I didn't know that I opened it up to the entire internet. Um, but now we, we're pushing 50 people in, in this club. Um, but it's fun. It's so much fun. But Dante, as you're reading it, um, it's a story of, it's written by Dante. It's a story of this pilgrim, Dante, who is trying to make his way to heaven. And he's trying to make his way to heaven. And there's this famous opening line. Let me read it to you, okay? Are you guys okay with this? Or is this too geeky or is this all right? All right, let me just read you the first part. The first part goes like this. When I had journeyed half of life's way, I found myself within a shadowed forest for I had lost the path that does not stray. When I had journeyed half of our life's way, Dante's 35, 35 years old. And he says, I've lost my way. And then later on, he describes this time. He says, he says, um, He says, I cannot clearly say how I entered the wood, this forest. I was so full of sleep just at the point where I abandoned the true path. And what he's describing, this is just brilliant. He's describing the fact that he says, I don't know how I got into this wood. All I know is I was so sleepy and I kind of woke up and I realized I was in a real mess. And how many times in the Christian life, when we fall asleep at the wheel spiritually, we get ourselves into a situation and we kind of wake up and we're like, How did I get into this mess? That's what Dante's describing. And he sees, and, and he sees, he says, Oh, there, there's a way out of this. There's a way out. But the way is blocked by three animals. And finally, he cries out for help. And he cries out for help, and help comes in the form of a, another poet. Um, Virgil who's a, a Roman poet and Virgil ends up being the guide for Dante but for Dante to get home to get to heaven he's got a long way to go he's got to go down into hell up into paradise, up uh, uh, purgatory before he gets to, to heaven now as good Protestants, we're like, oh, hang on, okay, I'm okay with heaven and hell, but what's with this uh, purgatory bit here? Okay, yeah, so good question. Um, but on the way, as he's heading down to hell, it's very interesting, the things that he comes across. Now, let me just tell you a couple, because I'm telling you, this, I've read this before. I'm reading it this time, and I have help. I have these, um, these great teachings that are helping me along the way, but I'm learning so much. And Let me just tell you a couple things that I come across. One is this idea that in order, in order for us to arrive safely home with God, we need to really plumb the depths of our sin. And that's what his journey through hell is. And it's, it's a power because a lot of people say, well, you know, I'll just go through life and I'll pray a prayer at the end and I get to go to heaven. He goes, no, no. Part of our conversion, part of our life in Christ is we need to come to the realization of just how deeply we sinned. And so Inferno is, is exploring just how deep and how dark our hearts can actually get and just what the, what the cost was that Jesus paid. Um, the other thing that I came across is that um, when he arrives at hell, is that hell has a gate. Heaven doesn't have a gate. Hell has a gate. There's no pearly gates, <laughs> but there is a gate in hell and there's a sign. Um, and there's a starless sky, there's no stars. There's no presence of God. And the thing about hell, what do you think the temperature's like in hell? Okay, if this is a medieval poet. What, how, what do you think hell's like? What's that? Progressively hotter, the deeper you get, right? No, it gets colder, it gets colder. Which is interesting, isn't it? It gets colder and gets darker. And so hell is frozen darkness where you cannot see anything. It's really interesting because that, that's what I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, that's a traditional idea. Um, and hell is characterized by noise. There's no silence. And then, and then, yeah, I mean, on the way there, you come across some interesting people. So Dante comes across some interesting people. He comes across this one group of people. And this is a very interesting group. They are the people who are so lazy that they neither love God nor rebelled against (laughs) Him, And they're kind of stuck on the, they're, they're like just stuck neither in heaven nor in hell. They're just they're just, they're just there. And he, the description is, is people that don't care enough to even pursue God. And yet don't care enough even to rebel against God. And it says they meander and they follow this banner, but they go nowhere. And I thought about it in our own culture, a lot of people are just, they're so tuned out. They're so zoned out that if you say, you know, God exists, it's like, I don't care. So you're rebelling, you know, you don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't care. I just don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about anything. And there's a whole group of people like that and they just kind of... And the other one is we is get to one of the rings of hell and it's where it's where people who, who are consumed by lust. And you know what happens to them? It's really interesting. Is they are all scrunched together. And you know, you ever... By uh, on, uh, on Boundary Road in the evening. You ever see all the birds on Boundary Road and the birds are all together and they whoo, whoo, they all fly together. And whichever way the wind blows, that's the way the birds are going. That's what this picture of, of lust is, is that they're completely given over to their appetite. So whichever way the wind goes, they're all smushed together and they're just blown from here to here to here. And they've lost any sense of reason or will. Anyhow, it's a brilliant book and I'm just making my way through. And there's one part, One one, one more part I'll tell tell you about, and there's a scene in the second book where Dante and his guide Virgil, they climb up the side of the mountain, and they stop, and they look back and saw how far they had come. And they make this observation that it's important now and then to stop in the Christian life and look back in order to see where you're at. This is, okay, so this is Dante. This is what I'm reading right now. And we're only six cantos in. If you want to join my geeky book club, uh, you can do it on uh, on Facebook. But it is so much fun going through this together. Just another example, someone we can learn from history. One final word about this course. One final word. <laughs> Sometimes when we hear the word spirituality, we get nervous. Because, you know, I, I, have you ever met somebody who says, you know what? I'm not religious. I'm more of a spiritual person. You know, I'm more spiritual, not so much religious and of a church. Um, Yeah. I'm really never quite sure what people mean by that. But I think usually what they're getting at is this sense of spirituality is this nebulous feeling of the sublime or something like that. I don't know. When we're talking about Christian spirituality, we're talking about people who are living in the spirit filled with the Holy Spirit, trying to deepen their walk with God. And so it is first and foremost rooted in the truth of God's revelation, in the truth of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing airy-fairy about spirituality. It is rooted in the truth of God's word and the truth of Jesus Christ. And what when we're looking at these people, we're going to be looking at how people wrestled with the realities of, of who Jesus is. That we believe that Jesus is perfectly divine, perfectly human, he's the infinite God-man. And if we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus, that so Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. He's the one mediator between God and humanity. And so our foundation of our exploration for this course is the rock-solid belief that the Christian faith is absolutely true, it is true. And Jesus is the only rock on which we can build our lives. And so even though we look at a diversity of traditions, these traditions are held together by the common truth of the Christian faith. And so in 1 Corinthians 3.21, Paul writes, all things are yours. Why? Because we all belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so in this class, we hold on to this fact that all things are yours. This includes the rich history of the church. They're yours. They're mine. And so as we journey through this class, we're going to find out there's much, much more to the Christian faith than you realize. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about the class, um, what we're going to be walking through. A lot of this is based on a book, big surprise, um, is based on a book by Gerald Sitzer. And the book is called, (laughs) can anybody guess what the title is? Water from a Deep Well. Yes, that's right. I actually emailed um, uh, Gerald Sitzer two weeks ago. I said, hey, thanks for writing this book. I said, we're going to be teaching it uh, at at our church in in a couple of weeks. And he wrote back. He goes, hey, I'm glad somebody's reading the book, and I'm glad it could be helpful. So so that's good. But we're going to be looking as we walk through – different themes. Um, Each week, we're going to be touching on certain themes of the Christian life found in different periods of history, and we'll be making it chronologically probably right up to present. So next week, we're going to look at witness, and we're going to look at er the early martyrs. We'll talk about early church community. We'll talk about um, uh, the desert. Now we'll talk about um, uh, sacramental life. Uh, We'll talk about uh, the Puritans and the word and And uh, yeah, all sorts of fun things, community, and the monks, and yeah, lots of lots of fun things. So that's what we're going to be looking at over these weeks together. We'll carry on on Zoom. I'm going to make sure I haven't missed any anything. Um, Oh, okay, yeah. Somebody said, um, you know, a lot of people who talk about being spiritual instead of religious. Yeah, that's good. Um, Any any questions or comments before we move on? Are we calling any logistical issues? Questions? You guys got it? You guys are so quiet online. You've never been this quiet. All last year you weren't this quiet. Maybe I have the volume down. Can you hear me? Can you guys hear me, Mike? Can you speak? We can hear you fine. Oh, you can't speak. Okay. That's the first time I heard anything online. All oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. You guys have any questions? No, no question. Now, David, I thought it's a privilege to be here to listen to, uh, uh, to you uh, showing us the great and fantastic you know, uh, secret of uh, successful men and women of God. And we can learn so much from it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Great, Peter. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. It will be a lot of fun. Anybody else have any questions? Well, yes. Uh, I'll pay you $5 later for asking that question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, next week, yeah, I mean, there is an interesting reading and you can find it online and I'll I'll write it down for you guys. and you get. I'll tell you what it is. I want you to uh, read the story, the account of uh, a woman named Perpetua. We talked about her before. So Perpetua, P-E-R-P-E-T-U-A, Perpetua. Is their homework? Yes. Read the story of Perpetua. <laughs> Now, it's a very, we will talk about her, but you can read the whole account. It's all online. I mean, you just just look it up, the story of Perpetua. Um, She actually writes an account of the events leading to her her martyrdom. And what makes it so interesting is this is the only example in ancient history of a journal written by a woman, I believe. The journal written by a woman. Yeah. And it's, it's, and she tells the story and it's, it's quite, quite an amazing story. We're going to talk about that, but it'd be neat. If it'd be really cool. If you, I'm so glad you asked for homework, everybody, some of you are like, why did you ask for homework? Okay. So everybody has to read that for next week. I'll be checking. Right. Um, but have a look, it, it, it takes a little while to read and it's not easy reading, but, um, it's her telling the story and what happens is she tells a story about, um, what the events leading to her martyrdom. And then somebody takes over obviously, because she's not in the circus going and now a lion's coming at me, you know, um, you know, so somebody takes over, but, uh, it, it's quite moving. And yeah, so we'll be talking about that plus, plus other things, uh, and then, if, if you want to prepare for um, looking at the desert, there's a really interesting book, and it's a short book. It wouldn't take you long to read, and it's called "The Way of the Heart." Denise has read that. One. I can see <laughs> uh, "Way of the Heart" by um... and that's on desert. Spirituality—it's it's it's very devotional, very devotional. Henry Nowen, H E N R I, Nowen is N O U W E N. He's a uh, Catholic writer on the Christian life. He died in 1996, I believe. But uh, as a Christian, as a pastor, whenever I feel Whenever I'm struggling as a pastor and as a Christian, you know, sometimes you struggle and you feel sick and tired of the business of church and stuff like that. The person who always re-centers me and grounds me is Henry. Now, you've read him, Irina. Yeah, yeah, he's so good and he's, he's so warm. Um, yeah, and he 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 understood pain and suffering in his own life. Yeah. Good. Well, hey, I'll keep the uh, keep the homework coming. I'll keep sending you uh, lots of ideas. But let me uh, close our time in prayer and uh, we will go from here. All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. People who have gone before us who have lived their life Coram Deo before the face of God. And may we learn from our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And may they speak into our own lives, into the particularities of our own lives and the things that we're facing today. And so we commit this class to you. We commit these weeks to you. May this be transformative. May it deepen, deepen our faith and our walk with you as we draw water from a deep well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me just stop. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.